NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, a world on edge and America on alert as Hamas's call for a day of rage appears to be living up to its name. Here at home, authorities have increased police presence around Jewish schools and synagogues the NYPD has ordered all officers to report to work today. In northern France, a suspected terror attack at a school has already left one teacher dead, several others critically wounded, stabbed, uh, we are told. The suspect, a man in his early 20s and of Chechen origin, reportedly shouted, Allahu Akbar. I don't even like to say those words. Those words to me are just associated with this kind of death and destruction. As he unleashed his deadly knife attack. We're seeing reports that he is a former student at that school. And years ago, staffers voiced concerned concerns that he had been radicalized. His younger brother, coincidentally, has also been detained. 5,000 miles away in Beijing, another attack caught on video. In it, you will see a man who works at the Israeli embassy being stabbed. Blood was visible all over the sidewalk. Just take a look at this. A hate-filled man ready to plunge the knife in. It is unclear what transpired before this attack. The victim, amazingly, is in stable condition. The suspect has been arrested. We don't know much about the suspect, but reports suggest he was not Chinese. Elsewhere, we're seeing an absolute lack of regard for the innocent lives that have been destroyed. In London yesterday, women were caught on video. This is disgusting. Tearing down posters of Israeli victims. Furious that anyone would dare to call attention to those who have been kidnapped by terrorists. And we know those who have been kidnapped include women and young children. Watch this. This my It's outrageous. This is fucking outrageous. What's outrageous? You. Why don't you do something for Palestine? Why don't you do me? This is for Palestine. Back here in the U.S. on campus after campus, many young people are showing where their allegiance lies, and it's not with the Israelis.
The one chant hard to hear, but it's important to know what they said. It happened at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. They were saying they've got tanks. We've, we've got hang gliders. Glory to the resistance fighters. So it's a we now. You want to be a we with the ones who are murdering babies. Okay. Got it. Noted. Can't wait until you submit your resume to my company or the company of any self-respecting lover of humanity. Hang gliders, of course, used by Hamas, not fighters, but terrorists to carry out this past Saturday's deadly attack. The hate being spewed on our college campuses proving too much to bear. And who could blame her for a Jewish girl at the University of Washington? Can I just, before we air this, just think about what's been happening on the college campuses where, I mean, for anything and everything, you have these people saying, I feel dehumanized. I'm dehumanized by your Halloween costume. This is what we hear. People get fired. The over-the-top reaction. This woman just had her people attacked in a massive terror attack in Israel where People who look like her, who share her faith, were brutally cut down at at age 20, at age two. And she's got to look at people who are sympathizing with the murderers two feet from her on a college campus. I'm not saying that our free speech laws don't allow it. Okay, I'm not saying that I don't I don't know whether this is a funded, a publicly funded university or not. But my point is, this actually is a dehumanizing situation. This actually is a situation in which she might truly feel, quote, unsafe. This word that has been perpetuated on every college campus or the stupidest non-existent slights. But when it's an actual Jewish woman afraid at the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas people right next to her chanting things like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means no more Israel. It's mm, sorry. Mm, oh, well, take, you're, you're good. Watch this as she appears to beg a school administrator to intervene. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Joining me now, someone who knows all too well what radicalization can do, Ayan Hirsi mm-hmm. Ali, human rights activist and founder of the Ayan Hirsi Ali Foundation. And for those who don't know Ayan's background, uh, she grew up um, in Somalia and underwent all sorts of difficult uh, experiences, which have been well documented and managed, though you found yourself surrounded by Muslim Brotherhood and Islamists to get yourself out of that and find an entirely new life. And you've been a brave spokesperson against these kinds of atrocities ever since. So Ayan, I haven't had the chance to talk to you since Saturday's events. What are you seeing and how are you reacting right now to what's unfolded? 
So I'm seeing everything that you described and more, and I'm looking at the different countries, of course, the United States, where we are seeing an entire generation that have been brainwashed to react against their own values, against their own country, against their own civilization. Um, I'm seeing similar things in Europe. Um, I'm watching um, the Arab Gulf War today. There was a call from Hamas and other radicals calling on all Muslims to take to the streets and to protest. Um, you don't see much of that in the Arab world today. Um, so I think, you know, in a horrific context, we are seeing some progress there. But I joined this debate right after 9-11, and I remember uh, as we were reflecting on 9-11, and I was in Amsterdam at that time, um, there was this big question, how could this happen? And we talked about complacency, and now you have different levels of complacency. So uh, Israel momentarily forgot about the enemy that wants to wipe them off the map, and they were fighting amongst themselves about reforming their Supreme Court. You know, I, I would, um, I, I wish that Israelis could behave like other democracies. I wish that they could have their internal disputes and forget that they have this external enemy that wants to exterminate them. But the price of distraction is what they're paying now. Even for us in America, 9-11-2001, and in Europe, you know, 7-7-2000, and I believe that was um, five, um, and then a series of jihadi terrorist attacks in Europe. Um, I find that Western nations are really complacent. We've gone back to forgetting about what happened. Every time we get a lull, you know, ISIS was taken down by the Trump administration. I think we lulled ourselves back into sleep, into thinking this jihadi monster is gone for good. Um, we forget we forget that there is. Um, there are two components to this. There's jihad, there's the violence, the terrorism. Uh, and we unleash our security and police forces, and sometimes, when necessary, our military forces on them. But what we truly forget is the Dao aspect of it. The exercises, the efforts to brainwash uh, small children, teenagers, adults in universities, and beyond. That's what we forget. So when you look at our campuses and you see you know, our kids, these are our kids in legacy universities chanting on and cheering on an entity that just committed the most barbaric, most heinous attacks on babies, on grandmothers. Then you really have to ask yourself, all the governing boards, the presidents of these universities, what are we doing to our own kids? These kids who go to Columbia and Yale and Stanford and Harvard and on and on, these are the people who are going to be running our country. I'm in my 50s. They are the next generation. They are the ones who are coming to leadership positions, and that doesn't look promising. And aside from that, so look at what happened right now to Israel. They got momentarily distracted with internal issues, and the existential enemy came around and took advantage of that opportunity. We in America, we have Putin, we're 
assisting um, as much as we can uh, Ukraine. And there we have an enemy that sees an opportunity and an opening every time we engage and indulge in infighting. And he, Putin, and his administration, they, they divide us and they know how to divide us and they take advantage of dividing us. And so does China. And so does Iran that assisted Hamas in carrying out this attack. So we have enemies that are prepared, that are intent upon destroying us and upon dividing us. And over and over again, we give them the opportunity to do just that. The house divided can't stand for long. And I think, um, I, I mean, for a few, maybe two or three years after ISIS was defeated, I felt a sense of hope, hope for Arabs and Muslims that they had seen with their eyes what the so-called Islamic State was, not the utopia that they promised, but a place of gruesome brutality and cruelty where they behead people, enslave, rape women, kill children, and then program those children with hatred. So everyone saw what the Islamic State was all about, right? And so for a while, I thought, okay, the Arab world, they have seen those, the, the youth of the Arab world, they know what it is and they don't like this. And then I thought, what about our Muslim minorities um, in America and in Europe? They too must have seen surely what that is. And no, they haven't because the programming effort that is carried out by a movement like the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic Jihad, um, and, you know, a panoply of radical Islamic networks that are active and feel themselves protected on American soil, on European soil, they carry on programming using free speech when it suits them, freedom of speech, freedom of um, religion when it suits them, freedom of association when it suits them to program our kids and our populations with hatred. And when we speak out against that, they say speech is violence. And unfortunately for us, they've captured the hearts and minds of our own kids, non-Muslims, moderate Muslims, uh, even Jewish kids. You know, last time I spoke to a friend of mine who is active in the, uh, you know, fight against anti-Semitism space. And I was asking her, why is it that so many of my Jewish friends are not fighting, they're not standing up against, to, against wokeism because wokeism, identity politics, um, it's many things, but it's especially anti-Semitic. And it is through that these woke, you know, um, critical race theory, um, the whole gender politics, this intersectionality, that is used as um, a pathway to make hatred of Jews acceptable again. And my friend couldn't answer that question. She said, you know what, I just think that Jewish people really... They just want to live and let others live. Unfortunately, Hamas and the radicals don't want to let them live. And that's what we're waking up to today. The shocking thing is, and you know, you and I have talked many times over the years, including during the height of the ISIS atrocities, the country, we were unified against that. You know, maybe there were a few fringy, weird radicals in the United States who said, yeah, okay, they've got a point. I don't know who those were, but they didn't have any sort of a, a voice that was getting attention. Here, you know, it 
campus after campus, both at the university, you know, administrative level and at the student level, not to mention some of these, you know, the democratic socialists, open rallies in support of, it's got to be said, Hamas. It, they, they may say Palestine. They, there is no way they don't mean Hamas. It happened in some instances while the Hamas attacks were going on, while the terror attacks were going on. You've been warning for a long time about the open borders problem, in particular in Europe, and how the influx, in some cases of radicalized Muslim men and others, is changing the culture as we knew it in places like France and elsewhere, and and in our own home as well. But in particular, we talked all about this when I first launched this show, because you just had a new book out about France. I thought of you this morning as we saw these Paris-France protests. What they're saying in French is, we are all Palestinians, and they're saying it with fervor. Look at this soundbite, Sot 5. Israel criminal. And these people are defying in France. You can't protest freely like you can here in the United States. There's uh, actually a crackdown on the protest, but they came out anyway. This is how important it was to them to make sure we knew they felt Israel was a criminal. And the cheers of jubilation, jubilation yeah. in the wake of murdered children, raped women, you know, 1,200 dead Israelis. They're, they're thrilled, Ayan. How does it all relate? Well, I think this is very well documented. The fifth column in France, the presence for many, many years of these programming networks, the Dawa networks, the brainwash, all these people that you've seen, many of them really born in France, maybe even their parents were born in France. So this is very, very well documented. And this is a conundrum for France, but increasingly also for other European countries. What do you do? Because you have freedom of religion and freedom of speech and all of these freedoms that these uh, jihadist programmers, they take advantage of. These people learned to think and to chant what they're chanting, not in Egypt, not uh, in the Middle East, not in any Islamic country, but in France. And it's well documented and it's well known. And we've known it now for decades. Um, but I guess the French government and French society um, talk about it. They write about it. They discuss it all the time. It features in their politics, but they don't seem to have found a way out of this conundrum. And I don't think and now, this- And now in France, five people are stabbed attacked yeah. and at least one man dead as a result of this. His name uh, per the sun is Dominique Bernard, a French literate, literature teacher aged someplace in his 40s. Again, reports of about five people being stabbed. Go ahead. Megan, it's more frightening than just that. You've seen now the crowds that you just showed me, but there is another issue that nobody wants to talk about. And there's the demographic crisis in France, in Italy, in Spain, in Britain, all of these European countries. 
The people who are chanting this are very young and they're numerous and they have more babies than everybody else. And the French are growing old, they're retiring, they're not having children. And I remember a Muslim Brotherhood prominent, um, you know, inspirer of theirs, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, when they would carry out some of these terrorist attacks that they considered jihad, Yusuf al-Qaradawi would say to them, you know what, you don't need to use, you don't need to carry out terrorist attacks. the, the, The most important strategy for you to follow is to bring in as many immigrants as possible and to have as many babies as possible. And that is how you take over Europe without firing a single shot. And so you look at this phenomenon now and you just see over time, uh, if things go the way they're going and the French government and society, they do nothing about this. This is just going to be a natural process of replacement um, and displacement. Uh, so I think the future right now, uh, it, it's it's pretty grim for France. I almost want to say grimmer for France than it is for Israel. But what happened in Israel is a wake-up call, I hope. I hope it is, yes, we've had so many wake-up calls. I don't know where to begin. 9-11 was the big bang. And in between, you saw all of those. These people don't hide what they believe in. They don't hide their agenda. It's on the internet, it's on social media, it's everywhere. They say it to us, they want to destroy us, and then we make excuses for them. And I hope with this event, we learn from it and we stop making excuses and we strategize about how to deal with this while we still can. Instead, we're putting them in charge of media organizations and in college campuses as university professors, in law schools as law school, as the next generation of up and coming lawyers. We've seen that this week, too. And that brings me to Stanford, uh, where you are. And at Stanford, an instructor, a teaching assistant, uh, was just suspended. That's it. They didn't name him, but we will, for a little stunt he pulled. Uh, the rabbi at the Stanford Jewish Center came forward and outed this guy because the rabbi was told by three students that this instructor, whose name is Amir Hassan Lagin, uh, according to Campus Reform, they're identifying him. Mm-hmm. And this man got his class together in a required undergraduate course called Civil, Liberal, and Global Education told the Jewish students to take their things, stand in a corner and said, this is what Israel does to the Palestinians. Uh, And then asked how many people died in the Holocaust. When one student answered 6 million, reporting here, uh, quoting from uh, Forward magazine, the lecturer said, colonizers killed more than 6 million. Israel is a colonizer. Stanford's response was to remove the instructor from teaching duties. Again, it's a suspension They did not name him and they did not provide details of the incident. Their explanation was he addressed the Middle East conflict in a manner that called out individual students in class based on their backgrounds and identities. Um, That's not exactly the full problem, Stanford. We Stanford's turned into ground zero in a lot of these problems, you know, with the the ridiculous rape accusations and them buying into that and the BLM stuff and the LGBTQ and now this. I mean, they're, yeah. other than the Hoover Institution, Ion, they're on the wrong side of virtually all of these things. 
Because again, it is this diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not about the core task, the job of a university is to teach kids how to think, not what to think. But then this fringe, I mean, in, you said in uh, nine, after 9-11, uh, we were all united except for this fringe and, you know, these, these weirdos. But now it's the fringe and the weirdos that run the show. And they got themselves positions where they are in by invoking diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then deploying this diversity, equity, and inclusion brigade of administrators. And so now we are kowtowing to them. We're actually scared of this guy um, because of what he could unleash administratively speaking at Stanford. I know I can vouch that for most students at Stanford and faculty, they don't agree with him. They're horrified just like we are, but we're all terrified of this diversity, equity and inclusion police that we have brought on as a matter of tolerance. And I think there was a strategy, a narrative that took hold in the 2000s and the 2010s that if only we include these various people, identities, minorities, then things will be great and we'll we'll find ourselves in a utopia. No, no, the fringe were a fringe for a reason because their ideas were outlandish and inhuman and tyrannical. And they are on it's all power centered and all they want is to destroy us and our structures and our institutions. They haven't changed their agenda. We have to get wake up and end this complacency. Now, still, uh, notwithstanding what we've seen this week, you get people peppering the Israeli leaders with questions like, how dare you? How could you possibly cut off the food and the water supply into Gaza? Gaza, which has just committed a mass murder of the Israeli citizens. How could you? And we saw an interesting exchange on this uh, between, it was the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, and a UK broadcaster, Channel 4, asking that question. Take a listen, it's Soundbite 6. Question is this, if I may. You seem to hold the people of Gaza, the civilians of Gaza, responsible for not removing Hamas, and therefore, by implication, that makes them legitimate targets. No, I didn't say that. But I did not say that. I want to make it clear. I was asked something about separating civilians from Hamas. But with all due respect, with all due respect, if you have a missile in your goddamn kitchen and you want to shoot it at me, am I allowed to defend myself? Yes. No one That's is, the situation. No one is denying the These right missiles are there. These missiles are launched. The button is pressed. Okay. The missile comes out from the kitchen onto my children. But Right. And, and yet Israel's being asked to keep supplies going again, to, Megan, to those folks. It's well, documented. it's well documented that Hamas installs, uh, I mean, and fights, you know, their sites for launching rockets are in people's kitchens and in people's neighborhoods among civilians. You know why? Because Hamas constantly, again, they don't hide their agenda. They say over and over again, you guys, you love life. We love death. And that's what Hamas is doing to Palestinians, to their own people, putting rocket launching sites amongst themselves, indoctrinating and programming their kids, strapping bombs on 
Palestinian kids. And for this, I don't, I didn't see the guy who was asking the question, but, you know, various branches of the United Nations, Amnesty International, which has been corrupted, Human Rights Watch, which has been corrupted, all of these organizations, they need to see that if there is an organization that is using their own children, Palestinian children, as weapons, Palestinian women, Palestinian, the elderly people, they're just using them as fodder, you know, as ammunition. And for them, for Hamas, it's only about their nihilistic utopia. They they say constantly, we want to destroy Israel by any means. And by any means, they mean their own kids, their own people. That's so exactly you can't, right. I, I don't think you can make excuses for it. There is no way that you're glaring. We're looking, staring evil in the face. This is what Hamas is. Hamas is, it's ISIS. And I think the longer that you, you extend this, the more lives it impacts, the more human suffering it causes on both sides. Hamas needs to be taken out. And I think the entire world, every decent human being should stand behind the goal of taking out Hamas completely. And then I think peace and prosperity between the people of Israel and the Palestinians has a chance. You know, there, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, um, I can't remember which group it was, they put, they put this together. They went and they, they interviewed Palestinian children about how they feel about the Israelis who, who want peace. The Israelis wanted to be left alone. That's what they pulled out of Gaza. They said, you, it's your territory. You guys go do with it what you will. What you will. And they elected Hamas, a terrorist group. And, and they started bombing Israel, hence the blockade, hence Israel saying, all right, fine, that's what you want to do. But still, Israel allowed Hamas to come into Israel, work Ham- people from Gaza to come into Israel and work there. There was a story in the New York Times, the Daily Podcast today, with an Israeli man talking about how his wife would regularly, I think once a week, go and pick up children from Gaza and bring them to Israeli hospitals so they could get uh, diabetes treatments like dialysis once Mm -hmm. a week, trying to help the children thinking, you know what, maybe we're on the road to peace. And then we saw that soundbite from the Hamas leader just yesterday saying we, we fooled them all. We, we stayed quiet for two and a half years, letting them think that we were actually going to go toward the peace process process. But the whole time he's proud. He's excited. We worked toward this attack the entire time we were working toward it and was yeah. thrilled that they had managed to fool Israel. But on the subject of the children, Ayan, and what we discussed at the top of the hour too, what, how, how are they raising their children there? The Israelis want peace. They are not raising their children to hate the Palestinians at all. And yet in Palestine, this is from 2016, I'll read for, for the watching audience on YouTube, you can see it for yourself, for the listening audience, I'll read what the children are saying, watch. We have to make war. I'm ready to stab and drive a car over them. I will fight. I'll ram a car I have to constantly stab them. Drive over them, shoot them, the Jews. And it goes on. Little one saying, I can't wait to join ISIS and kill Jews. I mean, these are babes. These are single-digit children, Ayan. Children, and my heart breaks for them because they've been put in these so-called madrasas. It's really programming centers. And they've been programmed this way. And they're not learning anything to learn how to live and flourish in this world. They're not learning 
maths, science, language, you know, all the things that we care about that we think, you know, as a child, this is what will help you if you want to build, you know, an economic, spiritual, you know, political, social life. That's not what these kids are getting. These kids are just being turned into destroyers by people who like to destroy. And just for the mm -hmm. sake of those children, I think Hamas should be destroyed. And the reason is they will keep doing this to every generation and they will keep spreading this. They've spread. I lived in Nairobi, Kenya. I grew up a Somali. Uh, we had our own problems. But when the Muslim Brotherhood came to our neighborhoods, that's what they were teaching us. You know, we, we were praying for the destruction of the Jews. None of us had ever seen a Jew. We, we The first time I saw a Jew, I was disappointed because I saw a human being walking in Antwerp in Belgium. And I thought, oh, that's a Jew. And it was like, I don't know, like a kid going to Disneyland and expecting this horrific monster with ears and a nose and all the pictures that we used to see. And it was just a man with his skirts. And I thought, that's all? I mean, that's a Jew? But that's how the indoctrination, how the programming works. And this is, they've done Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, these radical Islamists, they've done this to generations of people, just really poisoned and contaminated their brains. And I feel fortunate that I don't think that way anymore. And one of the reasons why I continue to speak out and to tell, please don't be upset with those kids. They're just kids, they're trusting, they, and the adults they trust, they're the ones who are putting them in that position. Moreover, I've spoken to Arabs and Palestinians, and when the cameras are off, there's no one watching. They hate it. They're over. They're done with this. Mm, it's they don't like it. So it is, Hamas has them hostage. So this is really a message to the people who say they care about Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. We really should get rid of organizations like Hamas, because as they say, they love death. So for those of us who love life, we have to unite regardless of our backgrounds and our religions, and we really need to get rid of them, get them out. As you said, and Hamas call, and always is, call out, is ISIS. Always call out, yeah. Always call out their ideologies in our universities, in our corporations, in our churches, on our streets, in our media. I, I don't think we should have any more patience with this type of thing. There's no more no. excuses to be made for it. And this guy at Stanford ought to be fired, along with all the other university pre uh, professors who are speaking out in defense of I think it's more than firing, Megan. I think it's more than I think we need to completely review this issue. This whole diversity equity thing has gone way too far. And I think all of the universities, they need to get and have a serious adult discussion about what the heck is this and how did we allow it? And we need to reform our universities fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talked yesterday about the the big donor at UPenn, who was calling for exactly that, saying this is the DEI thing's gone too far. We've all been complicit. The board of trustees, the big donors, it's yeah. all linked and it needs to be rolled back. I want to tell the audience, uh, the people behind that video was the Center for Near East Policy Research. They provided this material to Congress as part of an investigation into schools. And also, Ayan, she's written many books, but the book I was referring to is called Prey, P-R-E-Y, Immigration, Islam, and the erosion of women's rights. So good to see you. Thank you for being with us, Ayan. Oh, Megan, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you do. I think this really needs to be heard. Thank you. Oh, all the best. Okay, we're going to be right back with National Review's Noah Rothman. Don't go away. 
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome back to The Megyn Kelly Show. Our next guest wrote this in his latest column about what we are witnessing today. Quote, the sentence you are about to read would be incomprehensible to the average American just two decades ago. 22 years after the September 11th attacks, New York City's Jewish residents are keeping a low profile amid the unrest that is expected today, the day of jihad. Noah Rothman of National Review joins me now. Noah, it's absolutely stunning. It's deeply disturbing. I've been talking to my Jewish friends in New York all week, and they are getting similar warnings. They, uh, my one friend kept her daughter home from school today because she was so scared. She was too afraid to go into her, her public school. Um, when her other son got to a private school, it's not a Jewish school. It's, you know, there's a high Jewish population in New York. So there's a fair amount of Jewish kids there. He, they, he arrived to uh, armed security guards all over the place and guard dogs. That's how he had to enter his school today because of the quote, day of jihad, which has already taken lives in Paris, in Beijing. And unfortunately, I'm sure we're not done. What do you put it in perspective for us? It's been profoundly hardening, I will say, to see some otherwise reliable progressive voices, um, good liberals, honest Democrats, watch the scales fall from their eyes as they see their compatriots sympathize with the slaughter of Israeli citizens, the murder of senior citizens, the immolation of whole families, people uh, sheltering their children in their arms, covered in the blood of their children, begging for the lives of their remaining young. And I hope that it lasts. I don't suspect it will. There is a impulse on the left, which has been documented now by um, good Democratic uh, Jews over the course of the last decade, which imparts to their co-partisans the kind of generosity of spirit they have, that they see themselves and everyone else. They perceive themselves to be sophisticates, to be capable of comprehending the nuance of the situation, to be beyond these uh, Manichaean notions of good and evil, gauche. But they're not. And every time they, they convince themselves of this, they are ultimately betrayed by the people who are supposedly on their side. Because the real evil, the profound evil, is in us. It is in the West. It isn't it is in Israel. It is in the Jews. This isn't about Israel. It hasn't been about the borders of Israel, the status of Jerusalem, the existence of the Jewish state for a very long time. It's the Jews who are being targeted in Western European countries, in New York City. Not about Israel. This was an attack on Jews for being Jews. And there are people who think that's appropriate. That makes sense. Their lives are not as valuable as our own. A lot of Democrats right now are confronting these sentiments and saying, this is not me, and I don't, I don't accept that. I don't condone that. But when the partisan boundary lines reform around this contest, around this conflict, and it's the right that's on one side and the left that's on another, 
negative partisanship will kick back in and all these revelations of this week will again be compartmentalized and subordinated to the need to rally around the team. I hope it doesn't happen, but I hope it doesn't. I suggest I think it will. You, I mean, better than anybody, we've talked about your amazing book, The New Puritans, many times, and I've referenced it many times when you haven't been here, because I have yet to read something that did a better job of pointing out just the absurdity of what upsets the woke cancel culturers who have taken over our college campuses. I mean, could you, as the man who literally wrote the book, put in perspective, like the minor grievances that these same people who are now defending mass murder in Israel managed to get themselves worked up into a lather over about two minutes ago. Yes. So uh, that was a more satirical look at the social justice movement. My first book um, was a much darker look at the social justice movement, unjust and the social uh, unjust and the unmaking of America. Um, And one of the features that are one of the intellectual fads that I dissect in that book is this phenomenon of intersectionality. Intersectionality is sort of a useful, useful thought experiment. It compels you to see the world in a series of racialist, bigoted stereotypes in order to deconstruct those stereotypes ostensibly. But the practical effect of this ideology and marinating in it is to impart to you a worldview that is predicated on bigotries. It makes you see the world in a series of stereotypes to flatten individuals to make them into binaries. And it's very chauvinistic. It it views the world in a very um, American sort of understanding of the world. And in the American understanding of stereotypes, of bigotries, Jews are not an oppressed people. They control the media. They are in high finance. They are in the they occupy the commanding heights of entertainment and of television. Um, They're not oppressed. They are the oppressors. This is not a condition that exists anywhere else on the planet Earth, save perhaps Israel. It's the it's testament to the United States and to the promise that Washington made, George Washington, in 1790, in his address to the Congregation of Rhode Island, that this country countenances no bigotry, and it is home to the Israelites, as it is to all the world's stateless peoples, all its persecuted peoples, all its oppressed peoples. It is a testament to this country where Jews occupy the positions that they do in the United States. But in an intersexual point of view, they're, they have uh, ill-begotten gains on their hands, which is illustrative of the uh, status that they that they occupy. And it's it needs to be addressed. They need to be cut down a peg. So in the ladder, the hierarchical ladder of intersectionality, Jews are at the very, very bottom. And it justifies this sorts of prejudices and it justifies this sort of violence. It is it is in our institutions, as Ayan said, it is in our universities, it is in um, our boardrooms, it is in politics, in the highest offices in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it is a noxious, toxic philosophy that that it produces this kind of bloodshed uh, on a small on a smaller scale in the United States, on a profoundly larger scale in Israel and elsewhere in the Western world. But it won't stop there if we don't stop it. I can't get over the fact that when we first launched this show, we just had Ayana on. She was, I think, I don't know, episode nine. She was one of the first. Um, one of the other stories that we covered very early on was what happened to Brett Weinstein at Evergreen College in Washington State, where he got jo- he lost his job ultimately because the black students on campus wanted to do a, like a sick out for a day. They had been doing it where the black students didn't show up on a certain day of the year to sort of sort of show people this is what life would be like without us. It was voluntary on their part. Okay, whatever. But then this one year they said, no, we're coming and we want everyone who's not black not to come. All the white people need to stay home. And Brett Weinstein, then a professor there, said, 
I'm not sure that's such a, I don't think you can sort of try to mandate to the whites that they not come to the college education they're paying for. That might be a bridge too far. They stormed his office, the office of the dean. I feel dehumanized. This college is racist. He's a racist. How dare you? How could you let this happen? And the university sided with them. Now, you know, head a little further east to University of Wisconsin. And you see exactly the opposite. You see, I think that's where this girl who we opened the show with was crying, saying, how can you allow this? What do you, you know, look at this. These are people who are celebrating what Hamas did It was Washington. Okay, it wasn't even that far away. All right, Washington, same state. Um, The girl's crying, saying that they want my people dead. They want to kill us. How can this be allowed? I realize we allow protests in America, but you could much more closely see this young woman's point, right, and get behind her, which no administration is doing, than you could those evergreen students. And it's just been a 180. Yeah, and it's incumbent on us to accept and allow this because we understand that that is an American value, that the uh, answer to the ills of free speech is more free speech. They don't see it that way. They are not. It's a misnomer to call them liberals. They are not liberals. They're fundamentally illiberal. They want to silence you through coercion, coercive mechanisms, through threats, intimidation. That is an illiberal impulse. Uh, it is the height now of enlightened sophistication on the left to see the kind of um, racial segregation that you described just now as uh, sophisticated, as somehow it, it'll open your eyes to the to the world around you. Um, it's progress. It's progress. Right. It is. It is antithetical to everything we understand to be progress. It is antithetical to every um, every notion that undergirds the American civic compact. It is an assault on the civic compact. It is a war on American ideology. It is anti-American. We must regard it as such. It is not just another flavor, another intellectual fad that we are supposed to tolerate and compartmentalize and integrate into the social fabric. It is not. It is an attack on the fundaments of what hold this country together. The uh, college administrators who tolerate this sort of thing have made a deal with the devil because it is it does not countenance them. It does not countenance their values. It seeks to supplant them and replace them with something much darker. And it's about time, as I said, that we need to open our eyes to the nature of this threat because it is a threat. All I can think is I never want to hear another college student or administration tell me someone feels unsafe and therefore speech needs to be shut down. So I never want to hear this again because literally Jewish Americans, Jewish French citizens and so on might be unsafe today. They actually might be unsafe today. You know, we're having NYU unleash all of its cops on the city. There's FBI warnings. Uh, My security team, these guys at Q Verity who help keep me safe, just in case any lunatic, you know, you get issues as a public figure. They released um, something to me today, which I'll just I'll read to you uh, in part so that people can see it for them or hear it for themselves, uh, saying. While there is heightened security around places of worship, there are potentially softer targets such as streets, markets, coffee shops, parking garages, other areas where individuals are traveling to and from a place of worship, public transportation, particularly subways and buses, also particularly vulnerable today in major cities, they're saying. Given the uncertainty characterized above, it would be wise to carefully assess the need for travel and or activity outside your residence over the next 24 to 48 hours. This is not just for me. This is for people in these major metropolitan areas, in particular those with a high Palestinian population and or a high Jewish population. We've seen Jewish kids taking off their... um, 
you know, their yarmulkes. We've seen kids taking off their blazers that are identified with Jewish school. As I said, my friend's kids having to go through armed guards and and security dogs. Like they actually are potentially unsafe today. And yet it's being scoffed off like, "Mm, uh, this is what democracy looks like is basically the answer. And there are some who are uh, more open with their sentiments and their anti-Semitism who believe that maybe Jews should feel a little bit afraid today. I mean, if you've supported what they call the occupation or what have you, the barricades, I don't even know the logic that they use to justify the idea that the slaughter of 1300 Jews for being Jews is somehow justified. But they do say that, you know, maybe the, their fear should be shot through uh, them, that they should feel unsafe. Um, it is, first of all, an abrogation, again, of America's duty to its ju- Jewish citizens to say you can be Jews, but you should be Jews in the shadows. You should be in hiding, mm. should be afraid. Mm. Uh, and it is the, exactly what the terrorists are trying to commit here, is trying to convince them that they are something else, that they don't belong. Um, that is fundamentally what this country was founded to combat in a lot of ways. It hasn't always been perfect in that pursuit, but it has been the organizing principle. And this is a ideological battle to get the United States to abandon its self-conception, its fundamental duty to its citizens, its minority citizens. New York City in particular has been guilty of this. It has seen a profound increase over the last five years of anti-Semitic incidents. And it, its duty to its citizens have been abrogated. And it's trying to make a little bit of good here, right? This show of force, this display of force. The city's officials are not saying close down your institutions, your synagogues, your businesses, your schools. But Jews don't trust them. They've lost their trust because they've looked the other way as other constituents needs, as other faddish ideologies, as other priorities became uh, far more important than the safety and integrity of the city's Jewish population. And then you have events like this and it all comes home to roost. It demonstrates that it is all the same conflict. What happened over there is not utterly distinct from what happens in Morningside Heights. It is the same phenomenon, it is the same conflict. And that is why you have so many people uh, coming out in the middle of Times Square, in the middle of all these college campuses, um, in the middle of Dearborn, Michigan, at the Sydney Opera House, openly saying, gas the Jews, and these horrific slogans, openly. They're like Hamas. They're not embarrassed about it. I mean, at least the Nazis tried to hide what they did. These people are doing it uh, in the open, posting videos of it, and then being celebrated openly. Noah stays with me. Stand by. There's much, much more to get to, including more incredible, ridiculous back and forth on the murdered children in Israel. Stay with us. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw. I mean, just look at the little guy. 
Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome back to The Megan Kelly Show. Back with me now, Noah Rothman, senior writer at National Review and author of The Rise of the New Puritans. Noah, there's been a disturbing debate online um, uh, about the photos of the dead babies and about the claim that there are dead babies at all in Israel who have been murdered by Hamas. I mean, <laughs> excuse me, this, this has gotten so bad that Bibi Netanyahu felt the need to actually tweet out some photos of the dead infants something that Israel historically never does. They tend to be very respectful of their dead. So for him to do it was an extraordinary move. We've had the Jerusalem Post reporter. We've had another reporter say directly that they saw with their own eyes the the murdered children, including some decapitations, uh, some 40 babies. Now the reporter who originally reported it after speaking with the IDF soldiers is taking flack because they weren't all technically babies. Some were two. Some may have been three years old. I don't know about you, but I referred to my children as babies when they were that old as well. Grab the baby. Um, It's insane that we've now gone in some corners of the internet and even mainstream discussion. There was an LA Times reporter we talked about yesterday on the show who have become obsessed with this as though it's a lie and therefore you can't believe anything about Israel. By the way, it's not a lie. Babies were murdered. And even Tim Poole, who has been a guest on this show, who is extremely popular on the right and has an extremely popular YouTube show, tweeted out yesterday, retweeted this guy named Jackson Hinkle, who's got something like 580,000 followers on Twitter. And he's also a YouTuber. He retweeted him, um, suggesting that these are all AI generated. These photos that Netanyahu and Ben Shapiro tweeted out of dead, burned, mutilated babies, that they're AI generated because they're pixelated over the baby's faces where necessary. Um, It's incredible that somebody would be that irresponsible and take that leap. Um, And actually, if you look at what Tim Poole retweeted from this guy, Jackson Hinkle, it's as follows. Holy shit. The image that Ben Shapiro tried to pass off as a burned baby corpse was an AI generated fake image, exclamation point. They said they had a photo of 40 beheaded babies, but the photo showed a single baby. It was then revealed that the photo was an AI-generated image. But it didn't matter because the lie about 40 beheaded babies has already been heard by enough people to justify a big war. This guy, the same guy who Tim was retweeting, Jackson Hinkle, had just tweeted out, you're a pathetic Jew hater if you don't believe the AI-generated fake image, says Ben Shapiro. We don't have photo evidence of the 40 beheaded babies, but we do have photo evidence of Israel targeting civilians in their utter leveling of Gaza The U.S. lied about Iraq, Syria, Libya, Kuwait, Ukraine, and so on. But you believe they're telling the truth about Israel? Give me a break. This is what we're dealing with. This is very close to mainstream. Tim is, he's not entirely mainstream, but he's extremely popular in the digital lane. And he's retweeting this guy. And I'm not going to lie, it's deeply disturbing to me. Now, today he updates it with, oh, huge thread. The baby photo from Israel appears to be real. It's crazy <laughs> that this is the degree of warfare we're dealing with. I I can't. I can't. It's illustrative of a broader phenomenon that Americans don't want to confront, but must. I'm familiar with this guy, this Hinkle gentleman, unfortunately, because I spend a fair amount of time on the fringes of the Internet for the job that I'm in. And his professional lane is amplifying and boosting the signal of anti-American regimes. 
anti-American actors, uh, people and institutions that are dedicated to ending the peace and prosperity that we have enjoyed for so long that we hope to bequeath to our children. And what happened in Gaza and what happened in Israel, in Southern Israel, is not all that distinct from what happens on the battlefields of Ukraine. The tactics that we've seen are very familiar. Rape as a weapon of war, summary execution of civilians, ethnic cleansing, en masse. This is the images that we are seeing of what the post-American world will look like. Our enemies are not disunited. They are not acting at cross purposes. Moscow accepts high-level meetings with Hamas officials because it supports their objective. Moscow and Iran support each other's objectives in their in their regions. Iran supplies Moscow with weapons. Moscow supplies Iran with diplomatic cover. The objective is to embroil the United States in conflicts that weaken it, that hasten the post-American world. China is supporting all these conflicts. China provides the, um, Moscow with weapons components. China supplies uh, Iran with 25% of its weapons. It's its major tra trading partner. And it... it um, effectively a no negotiated a rapprochement in this year between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Why? In order to supplant American influence in the region. China would be very well served by a conflict that re-elevates, that makes central again the Palestinian issue to the region's diplomacy. It has been muted since the Abraham Accords. If this war were to make it once again central to how the Sunni regimes navigate their environments, it would suit, Iran, or suit China rather just fine. All of these conflicts are connected and they are not observing all these careful distinctions that Americans here like to say they observe in order to justify the idea that we can look at one over the other or we can compartmentalize them in some fashion. Sunni and Shiite militias, Sunni and Shiite regimes are not at each other's throats when the enemy is America. China and Iran have decades of problems going back to, to, the, to the 19th century with Russia. All of that is subordinated to the need to supplant the United States. All of these regimes are engaged in one mission, one goal, which is to hasten the onset of a world that we do not want to see, a Hobbesian world, a deadly, dangerous world, and one in which the United States retreats behind its borders. We have to get we sober to and serious them. right now. But we don't need to help them. What's happening? That's fine. You expect the Russians to do something like this. These are not Russians. These are very popular online influencers doing Russia's bidding, doing our adversaries bidding, doing obviously Hamas's bidding. Yeah, there's sort of an edgelord vibe there, right? Where they're just so edgy and they're so provocative and on the fringes and willing to say the things that no other person is willing to say. You know why no person's willing to say them? Because it's crazy, because it's absolutely insane. It makes you look like a ghoul and a lunatic. But it's the sort of thing that it does attract a particular, a particular psychology that perceives themselves to be on the outside of polite society. Mm -hmm. And once you perceive yourself to be that alienated, that removed from from the uh, understood, accepted uh, humanity to which we all are supposed to subscribe. It gives you license to do a whole lot of things. It's all fun and games when you're talking into a camera for YouTube, but the person on the other end of that camera maybe takes you seriously. Maybe doesn't think that this is all just fun and games and we're just trying to be as provocative and fiery and really test the bounds of polite society. Maybe they do something about it. That's the Honestly, sort of thing I that these people do need if, to consider. If you're watching what what has gone on over the past six days or five days and you think Ben Shapiro is the villain, you're sick. That's you've got a serious problem. You need to do some serious reassessing. Um, I wanted to ask you on the piece of paper that I just crumpled up at the bottom was a tweet 
from AOC. Uh, my team had to resend me the tweet since I crumpled up my paper. This is what she tweeted. And I wanted to ask you about it because I know you just dropped a piece for, about her on National Review. She writes, the level of misinformation, speaking of this photos dispute, the level of misinformation in all directions at this moment is incredibly high, especially on this platform. If you see a claim photo or video that triggers a strong emotional reaction, take a moment <laughs> to pause and check for veracity or confirmation from multiple sources. This is what she's she basically saying. The horrific photos you've seen of the dead Israelis. Mm, mm, eh, mm, be careful. May not be true. She needs to take her own advice. You were saying to Ayan in the previous segment that there was this Hamas official who was saying on camera bragging about the degree to which manipulable Western sympathizers are so easy to fool and trick and gull into regurgitating her own narratives, taking credit for it. They was talking about AOC. She was Mm -hmm. talking precisely about her. She's one of these people who's out there saying Israelis are putting civilians in harm's way. No, Israelis are not putting civilians in harm's way. Hamas is putting civilians in harm's way. Hamas is, according to Trey Yangst over at uh, Fox News, doing all it can to barricade people into their homes and prevent them from transiting into IDF-identified safety corridors to avoid being caught in the crossfire. The uh, Hamas is urging its citizens, as they always do in these conflicts, to surge the border and create a human barricade against Israeli invasion so that they will be the first to take fire. Hamas puts weapons in hospitals and UN-run schools and mosques. Hamas executes attacks from civilian areas in order not to not to dissuade uh, uh, Israeli retaliation, but to maximize the potential for collateral damage when they do. And Hamas has been tearing up civilian infrastructure, destroying greenhouses, ripping up uh, 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 tubes and uh, the sort the the water the transit networks in order to turn them into rockets to fire on civilian territories and draw responses. This is what Hamas does in order to justify its own existence. Its compact says that it must be dedicated to the destruction of the Jewish state and the murder of Jews wherever they can be found. And in order to maintain this fervor, it cannot have commerce. It cannot have economic growth. It cannot have development in its in its territory because that would dissuade the public from their thirst for war. They need a war-bound public eternally and always in order to justify the regime. That is why it needs to be liquidated. That is why it cannot be allowed to exist. It executed an attack on civilization, of which we are a part. We were targets of that attack. Whether American blood was shed or not, and it was, 25 Americans were murdered or more, and many Americans are being held hostage with the threat that they will be executed on camera if this terrorist group's demands are unmet, and they will go unmet. This is our war, too. And you have to decide what side you're on. That's right. You've got people like, I'm sorry to cite this cretin, But you've got people like this Andrew Tate, who, I mean, what long checkered history. He was like he's like a fighter who thinks he understands military warfare and the laws of it because he's spent some time in the ring tweeting out. You have to negotiate. You got to talk. There's no harm in talking. And I'll give you this response, not to him, but just on this issue from our former president, George W. Bush, who had some thoughts on whether we could just talk it out with these mass murderers. It's SOT 9. In a democracy, the people's voices matter, and there's going to be a weariness. You watch. The world's going to be, okay, let's negotiate. You know, Israel's got to negotiate. They're not going to negotiate. These people have played their cards. They want to kill as many Israelis as they can, and negotiating with killers is not an option for the elected government of Israel. 
And so we're just going to have to remain steadfast. But it's not going to take long. For that's gone on too long. Surely there's a way to settle this through negotiations. Both sides are guilty. My view is one side is guilty, and it's not Israel. But already, from some corners on the right, ah, uh, it's another forever war. It's another forever. I mean, we're literally not even a week into it. It's a forever war, Noah. The president's right. Um, those who are calling for Israel to stand down, to negotiate, to not engage in its own self-defense are calling for victory for Hamas. They're saying that Hamas has executed a successful terror attack. It should get everything it wants. And that will be get more bloodshed, more violence. Not sure they they know that. If they do know that, they, uh, the people who are advocating for that sort of uh, acquiescence and engagement, um, they don't seem to care. Uh, it's very disheartening to hear that pusillanimous cowardice from some quarters. But I don't think it is in good faith for most of these individuals. Uh, I don't think that they have Israel's best interests in heart. I don't think they cherish and covet the American geopolitical order uh, that has given us the kind of peace and prosperity that no other human beings in the history of humanity have known to the degree that we know it for so long. I don't think they're grateful for the world that they were bequeathed by their grandparents and parents who sacrificed everything to, to give it to them. I don't think they care. I think they're selfish. I think they're um, narcissistic self-obsessed, and in some extreme cases, sociopathic. I don't think this is an ideology that we can negotiate with. I don't think those who have subscribed to it and those who sympathize with it are uh, good faith actors. I think they need to be defeated. Defeated in the realm of ideas and defeated on the battlefield where they are militant. The sitting president gave an an interview to 60 Minutes, which I assume will air on Sunday, and um, commented on the American hostages. We don't yet have a number on, I think the latest number of Americans killed was 22 or 25, forgive me. Um, the number of hostages is 27 now, has not yet been released, but there are some. I'll get to one of the moms of one of them who's speaking out. But the president sat down with 60 and uh, had this message. I think they have to know that the president of the United States of America cares deeply about what's happened to them, deeply. We have to communicate to the world this is critical. This is not even human behavior. It's, it's pure barbarism. And we're going to do everything in our power to get them home if we can find them. That's his message. And meantime, Noah, just breaking, Israeli troops, including infantry and armored forces, have carried out local raids now in the Gaza Strip, said the Israeli Defense Forces on Friday. They are searching for the hostages, uh, the Israeli hostages, the American hostages, whatever other hostages are there. And I'll just leave you with this. There was a New York Times piece by the mother of one American hostage, Hirsch Goldberg Polin, uh, U.S. citizen born in California, was at the music festival. And this is the audience may be familiar with his story. He sent his parents two short messages on Saturday morning as the attack began. The first one said, I love you. The second one only, I'm sorry. And they haven't heard from him since. This is one of our guys. This is an American citizen. Um, She wrote a longer piece. My God, it's awful, Noah. She writes, Hirsch, our oldest child and only son, he was camping with his best friend at an outdoor music festival near Israel's border with Gaza when Hamas terrorists began firing. We later found out Hirsch and his friends managed to escape by car, but were forced to stop and take cover in a roadside bomb shelter. Terrorists then attacked the shelter, blowing off Hirsch's arm from
from the elbow down by machine gun fire or a grenade or both. According to witnesses, he was then ordered into a pickup truck. I want things to go back to how they were before Saturday morning. Before I saw Hirsch's text messages, that alerted me he was in grave danger. I love you, and I'm sorry. But here we are stuck in the awful present. If he is still alive, how much longer can he survive? His wounds are grievous. I hope somewhere, someone somewhere, is being kind to him, caring for him, attending to him. Every single person in Gaza has a mother or had a mother at some point, and I would say this, then, as a mother, to other mothers. If you see Hirsch, please help him. I think about it a lot. I really think I would help your son if he was in front of me, injured, near me. It's too awful to imagine. And I'm sure we've got our own Navy SEALs right next to these IDF guys going in there trying to get our guys back. But there is the matter of American lives involved in this too. And the matter of how on earth do they save these 150 hostages in light of how Hamas is using them? Uh, I I don't even know how to respond to that. It is absolutely gut-wrenching. I don't know either, Megan. I don't suspect there are a lot of very good options. I think Hamas has demonstrated uh, insofar as it's possible to convince people who are willing to be convinced that they want to kill these people and they want to make maximize the amount of pain that we experience. And it's not about demands. It is about demonstrating the absolute inhumanity of this organization as a means of deterring us, as a means of scaring us. It's pretty effective. Um, in 2014, the United States had gotten out of Iraq two, three years prior, and they really supported that. They wanted to wash their hands of the Middle East. And then the Islamic State poured across Iraq's borders and captured two Americans, James Foley Wright and Stephen Sotloff, and beheaded them on camera. And overnight, American opinion turned on a dime and said, we need to go back in. The impetus for going back in was the uh, siege of the Yazidi population, and that was the justification that Barack Obama used to justify the reinvasion of Iraq at the Iraqi government's request. But it was going to happen whether that happened or not. The American people wanted revenge, and it was justified and righteous. And I wonder how Americans will react 10 years later, a new world, a different world, but nevertheless, one that still includes the United States that is proud of its country, that rejects the notion that it just has to sit back and take it from these animals. And if that happens, what will we do and how will we react? And will we be contained? I don't think we can be, nor should we be. And you can expect all the usual suspects will come out and say, well, we have to observe restraint. And maybe they have a point. Look at our history. We're not perfect. And those people will think that they have the moral high ground and act like it. But it is barbarism. It is a soft-spoken barbarity. And it needs to be treated with the contempt that it is that it deserves. Uh, I pray for these captives. I hope we can find them. I wish I had more hope for their fates than I do. But we also need to be thinking about the contingencies of what happens if and when I think they do what they want to do and how far we plan to go to avenge them. Mm. It's too awful to imagine. I mean, every parent out there is thinking about that line. I hope someone somewhere is being kind to him, caring for him, attending to him. There are real 
human victims involved in this behavior. They should not be forgotten. Noah, all the best to you, you and your family. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Megan. We'll be right back. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome back to the Megan Kelly Show. Now we turn to an important issue on the transgender madness that is gripping our nation with an expert on the topic. Jennifer Billick is an artist, activist, and investigative reporter who is dedicated to following the money behind this whole movement. My God, she's done amazing work. Her detailed reporting reveals that major financial players in America are influencing almost every aspect of life to normalize this radical agenda not just here in America, actually, but across the the globe. Her blog is called The 11th Hour. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. My apologies. It's shorter than I would have liked it. But as you know, this the news out of the Middle East is just so devastating today. But I'm going to have you on again and we have a longer conversation. I've been dying to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful to be here. I mean, you, you are a hero to me and to many others for actually doing the digging on this topic that needed to be done. It's not just, I mean, it's, you, you understand this movement and what's behind it better than anybody. You also understand why it's become so financially lucrative and how it's being funded. So we're going to go there after we start a little bit on your background. So how did you, how did you come to the issue of this transgender craze and you know, what, what made you interested in that finances behind it? Um, well, I was in activist circles since Occupy Wall Street, um, life campaign for women's rights and the uh, the health of the environment uh, since I'm in my 20s. Um, but around the time of Occupy Wall Street, uh, there was a very, very robust uh, igniting of activism, you know, political activism. And that lasted for quite a while. Um, but within this community, uh, there was this sort of second McCarthyism developing where you couldn't talk about uh, this particular issue, and this particular issue, what most people call transgenderism, I call the synthetic sex industry because I have um, researched the money behind this. Um, and it is um, a growth industry, a growth business in um, disembodiment from sex reality. And these new identities that are forming under the LGBT banner, uh, once, you know, a real civil rights movement is now uh, corporatized and it's been infiltrated. It was infiltrated by the medical industrial complex during the AIDS crisis. Um, and they never left. 
Uh, well, the LGBT at this point is um, worth $3.17 billion as a marketing constituency. So that's an awful lot of uh, marketing and capital power, um, you know, to cross market with other corporations. So it's like one of the ways that they get people on board with this ideology is to, um, you know, basically you support our community and our constituency, our marketing base will support your business. Um but yeah, basically, this is really has nothing to do with identity. Um, corporations, international finance houses, international law firms, um, Silicon Valley, the medical industrial complex don't really care about the identity issues of a minuscule part of the population. Um, it's absolutely a ridiculous uh, concept to think so. <clears throat> they care about money. money. They yep. care about they money care and about they care you know, about th- This power. makes me think of, do you remember the scene in Devil Wears Prada where um, the Anna Wintour character played by Meryl Streep looks at uh, the young sort of ingenue uh, played by, it was, uh, I can't remember, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. And she's like, she's like, do you really think you chose that sweater just out of your own tastes and desires? <laughs> you chose that sweater and that Cyrillic green, whatever it was, because this team of people, people in here years ago decided you were going to like that color one year. It was better right. than the way I just said it. But you're you're kind of saying it's the same thing. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I mean, if you just look at the figures, I mean, market research uh, is an a- analysis. Uh, you know, they do market analysis firm and they project the um, synthetic sex surgeries will be in the billions by 2026. Now, there's another marketing research analyst firm that has pro- projected the figure at 30.5 billion by 2028. <clears throat> uh, they're both accredited by the Better Business Bureau. So who has the right statistics? I don't know. But what we do know is that these, uh, the increase uh, and the profiting off of these surgeries are being driven by um, government, policies, po- government policies, uh, positive policies um, and promotion that these sex surgeries are available. Um, yeah, and people knowing about them and also the uh, the clinics coming up to serve this, uh, people that want to disown their sex for whatever reasons. And there's many reasons many people would choose that. Uh, they might've had a trauma in their lives, um, you know, leading to dysphoria about their, their sex reality. Um, you know, they might be homosexual and not want to deal with the, the homophobia in society. Um, you know, uh, there are adult men who have a fetish of autogynephilia. Its colloquial name is transsexualism. Um, and this really is the root of this issue. Um, it's sort of had a rebranding to transgenderism because transsexual surgeries would be a very difficult sell to a young population. And this is really being targeted to um, the youth because what they're doing under this banner of gender identity, um, I think we really should throw out the word gender altogether and just use sex uh, because gender can, can is really talk, confusing. Can you expand on that? Because this confuses me too. I mean, this confuses me because even as somebody who's been covering this more and more, I've heard others well, make this argument. Well, some people see gender as just another- this argument. 
Well, because but let me yeah. just set it up because years ago I had Deborah So on the podcast, who I love, and she was she's uh, got a PhD in sexual fetishes and so on, and she was saying, you know, gender is the way you sort of express. Your, your gender identity is the way you express what you feel is your gender, which may or may not be um, the same as your sexual identity, as, as you know, your, your, your sex, your biological sex. And I can see what I can see that point that some people may feel more flamboyant and they may choose clothes like an, for a male that are just a little bit more girly, you know, or vice versa. Why? Why? do we say that there is no sort of gender identity? Why, why is it all about biological sex in your view? Um, because if you look about what's happening in a culture, I mean, if you listen to what everybody's saying, you know, gender identity, there's a whole lot of stuff going on underneath that umbrella, right? Gender identity umbrella or transgender umbrella. You have men with the, the, uh, the uh, fetish of autogynephilia. You have people with disorders of sexual development, intersex conditions. You have kids that are uh, rebelling against sex role stereotypes. Um, you have other young people embracing those sex role stereotypes and wanting the opposite sex role stereotypes. Um, you have feminine men uh, appropriating the, uh, the word for feminine men in other cultures. Uh, and all of these things are supposed to be meaning transgenderism or gender identity. So what does any of that mean? You know, I mean, words are supposed to communicate uh, clarity to bring clarity in communication. Mm. But this word doesn't really do that. Um, it obscures what's really happening, which is the deconstruction of sex, uh, linguistically, socially, medically, uh, legally, um, and just about every other way. Um, young people are actually having their healthy sex um, medically assaulted for this ideology. Um, and you know, we as a species are far more profitable as um, as parts, our sex reality. We are, are we are holy sex. We are whole beings. Our sex isn't separate from our our whole beingness. Um, but to to create a division like that, the demarcation line to disappear that demarcation line between men and women deconstructs our sexual dimorphism as a species, male and female. So just so, so just now to clarify, we're being, you're saying this term gender identity is being used to take away the realities of biological of what's sex. happening. Exactly. Okay. That's, that uh, this makes is sense. why. You, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, you know, I mean, we're being, uh, we're being divided into penises, vaginas, breasts, uh, ovaries, wombs, um, gametes, you know, we're all being, you know, divided into parts. And what this is really is a, is a transhumanist paradigm. Um, whereas transhumanism and, you know, S Silicon Valley has been selling us transhumanism uh, since the, the early 2000s. And, you know, AI is coming uh, hard and heavy at us uh, today. And um, transhumanism projects that we will eventually become like sort of another species altogether. Um, and this whole apparatus, gender identity apparatus, is really driving that narrative um, of sort of lifting yourself out of your, your humanity and creating uh, another species. And yeah. people, they, they, uh, we're calling people transgender, but we're also setting up a sort of, um, it's a corporate construct. It's not real. Nobody transitions their sex so far, no matter how much surgery they have, 
no matter how many drugs they take. Um, and we're, we're entering a phase where, uh, you know, genetic engineering and reproductive technologies are, are poised really to um, usurp, usurp the integrity of our, of our wholeness. Um, and this is this is why you know, I I don't use that term. I try to avoid the term transgender altogether. I'll say it's a man posing as a woman. It's a woman posing as a man. That's that's more clear, and actually I think captures what's actually happening. Somebody pretending to be a member of the opposite sex. That's really what's going on. But wait, let me shift. And this into, really originated on the, with on men. Money. Oh, of course, it was all male. It wasn't a woman's thing yeah. at all until you point out right. these other actors, the medical industrial complex got involved and started convincing 16-year-old girls that they somehow weren't girls. But I didn't right. realize until reading your stuff that the, th- there's a point, like there are actually really well-funded trans people whose last names you're gonna know who have been behind this, who are actively pushing it. And not surprisingly, I, honestly, it's just like, Rachel Levine within the HHS department. I really think that Rachel Levine is a man posing as a woman and he wants your kid to do what he did. He wants to feel validated by you and your kid. He doesn't care about the health consequences to your child. And that's the same of this so-called Jennifer Pritzker, who is really not a Jennifer. Take me to the Pritzkers and their role in all of this. Oh, the Priskers. Wow. I mean, I could just talk days upon days upon the Priskers. Um, uh, the Priskers are um, a very large family in America that made their uh, bank on the Hyatt hotel industry, but have since um, gotten invested in the medical industrial complex. And there's very many of them and they're worth like 29 billion. And they've had a huge, huge influence on driving this ideology through the culture. Um, an ideology of disowning uh, your sex reality um, as progressive and cool and edgy for the youth. Um, they fund uh, multiple um, organizations throughout the culture, the, the, the military. They fund massive millions and millions and millions of dollars to um, cash-strapped universities um, in America, in Canada, in Israel. Uh, Jennifer Pritzker is a man uh, who you already noted that in his sixties, he uh, decided, you know, he was, he was a woman suddenly. Um, and he, uh, you know, he made an announcement to his uh, colleagues that he was going to be a woman. Now he's going to present himself as a woman. And he felt like a woman as if a man could know what a woman feels like. Uh, Not convincingly. and (laughs) And he has this organization called the Tawani foundation which is a philanthropic organization, and he funds um, all the big kahunas of the, uh, the gender who are driving the gender industry, like WPATH. Um, and the WPATH also, you know, here's another organization that are working to promote this idea that people can be born in wrong bodies. And the, the uh, managing director over there, uh, Sue O'Sullivan, with her sister, co-founded Veritas organization, which is a medical um, uh, management company. They do uh, forums and everything for, you know, everything medical, including uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, corporations that uh, promote these and make these puberty blockers for, for children. Um, and uh, the uh, business arm of Tawani Foundation, um, Tawani Enterprises, partners with, uh, they're, it's an asset management company and they uh, 
manage the assets of medical tech uh, companies. Um, yeah, so, and then you have John Stryker, who founded Arcus Foundation, which is probably the most significant um, LGBT organization in the world Arcus, here in America. Okay, keep going. Arcus, yes. And um, he's heir to a $19.3 billion medical corporation. And he comes out of finance, comes out of um, uh, asset management also. And um, he funds his LGBT NGO through his medical corporation. Now it's medical supplies, but they also just got into the uh, facial feminization surgery market. Oh Lord! Um, when I started writing about them in 2018, they were like 13.5 billion was their you know uh, annual revenue. That's what they were worth, right? We're talking billions of dollars here. I mean, the medical industrial complex complex needs to be fed. It's a beast. It's like 13 trillion dollars huge. The global medical industry. It's like one of the largest industries ever. And it needs to be fed, and it's feeding on these transgender surgeries, you know, and uh, medical manipulations. Um, and people are getting caught up in this because of the propaganda that's coming from the very same people that are uh, going to be profiting from it. Um, and these, this is moving into uh, transhumanist surgeries. Uh, like you could just look at Elon Musk just came out with the Neuralink, and it was just approved for implanting in humans and um the technological reproduction market is so advanced now um you know the things that they're able to do with uh with genes and and dna manipulation and uh creating uh embryos from from skin cells that you can grow in a dish um you know, and the whole surrogacy market that, plays right, into wombs, this. Like out-of-body wombs, actual And out-of-body wombs. And in-body wombs. They tr they're researching how to implant wombs into men. Jesus. Not only how to implant them into men in order for a male to give birth and have that experience, but to also leave this womb in the man so that he can menstruate and have that experience oh as well Lord. i mean it's absolutely bonkers you know the research that they're doing but people don't really connect this to the to the uh you know to what's going on here the gender industry because they think it's a human rights movement because this is what's been promoted to them i mean the the propaganda for this has been relentless since like 2014 when laverne cox showed up on the cover of uh, Mark Benioff's Time Magazine. Mark Benioff is, you know, founder of Salesforce Computing Cloud, uh, Cloud Computing, excuse me. And um, he's had myriad people on there who attempt to disown their sex and promote that as a positive, um, you know, lifestyle for humanity. Um, he also has a uh, invests in gender clinics and also in medical reproduction. Uh, technological, you know, reproduction, as does Jeff Bezos, who has uh, has invested $166 million in a clinic in Brooklyn that does these surgeries on people's healthy reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. And he also has a, uh, a um, fertility platform on Amazon. His ex-wife, uh, what's her name now? 
Mm. Mackenzie. Well, let's just right? call her his ex-wife because Mackenzie Phillips, right? Yeah. Is it Mackenzie Phillips? Anyway, let's just well, call Mackenzie her the Bezos. I don't know. Is it Mackenzie <laughs> Phillips, the girl from that TV show we used to watch? Mackenzie Scott. Yeah. Mackenzie Scott, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. I knew you'd find it. Um, you know, she's giving millions and millions and millions of dollars to the LGBT, which is really not, you know, it's not the LGB of your at all. We have no grass. It's really just the T. Activists it's here. really now just yeah, the T. Really just the T and the Q. And the amount of promotion of this and the fact that you can't critique it. I mean, it goes a long way to tell you that, you know, this is, uh, you know, you're messing with profits. That's why they don't want you to talk about this. So let me add to this. So just today, now it's not just uh, the amount of profit, right, right in the, but in the way they want you to talk about it. But just today, there was news that the Biden administration is now mandating, trying to mandate that it, that all employers refer to their trans employees by their preferred pronouns that it will, oh, yeah. by definition, constitute workplace harassment if you don't go along, if employees who are co-employees with a trans person don't say those. Now, this is going, mark my word, this is going to be struck down. This is unconstitutional. The government cannot mandate speech. This isn't Canada. Sorry, Joe Biden. It's still the United States of America. <laughs> I can't wait until Alliance Defending Freedom gets its hand on its hands on this. It's going away. It's going away. But he's trying and making us say the pronouns, making us say the names, making us speak the way they want us to speak and not say the things they don't want us to say is all part of it. Well, Biden is just really carrying out the um, the agenda of uh, Obama, who was really bought and paid for by the Pritzker family. I mean, Penny Pritzker, who's the cousin of Jennifer Pritzker, um, really put him in the White House. He was really, you know, he was he was nobody really until, you know, she found him and uh, dusted him off and <laughs> really introduced him to all the wealthy funders that were, got him into the White House. And then he became our trans president, you know, putting through all these policies and, and uh, you know, bills to support synthetic sex identities. What is Jennifer Pritzker's relation to J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois? Oh, that's his... Um, that's his cousin. JB is his cousin. So and JB just passed a, um, a bill in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I think it was last year it was passed. 2022, I think. Um, for grade schools and, uh, well, all schools there um, to, to bring in this health education that um, teaches transgenderism or gender ideology or synthetic sex identities as, as a choice for you in your life, for children. Um, and it was brought in, it was sort of a test case. It's like if you, if parents go along with this, you have to have all of the health education that we're promoting. And if you don't want, if you don't want it, then you can't have any health education at all. Now, they decided they didn't want it, which was, you know, thank God, you know, but this is being pushed at every single angle of society. Um, And there almost seems like there's no way out because all the corporations are on board. You know, the ESG, the Environmental Social Governing um, uh, issue, you know, those uh, those are and diversity, equity, inclusion. 
um, those are policies pushed down from the top of society, like BlackRock, who also have an investment in the in the gender industry and the synthetic sex industry. Like why, you know, they've got how, how many trillions of dollars in assets and they care about the the identity issues of a minuscule part of the population? I don't think so. They want to make money. But these, you know, children. Yes, this is being targeted to the youth because they want the youth to dissociate from biology, from their biological reality. This is the transhumanist paradigm, you know, uh, getting them to think of themselves not as whole integral human beings, but as parts for the market. Mm. That you can sort of like they're Lego people, you know, we're, we're, we're indoctrinating children to think that they're Lego people. That you because, and this is because reproduction is poised to be usurped by the technology industry. So then you don't really need male and female. And you don't need um, sexuality for bonding, for intimacy. It's really just a sort of a kink fest. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're all these weird automatons just walking around genderless, organless, nothing special about us whatsoever. We we can grow babies in the womb. We can have our exactly, exactly. belly buttons chopped out. We can have our genitals chopped out. We can just look like these cyborgs. And I guess this is what's going to make us happy and better. This is, I mean, like no one cares is really the thing. The Pritzkers don't give a damn about happiness and BlackRock doesn't care about happiness. They just care about money. And power. This is power. They think they're building God with technology. At a time when, you know, um, religion is really absent from a lot of people's lives and becoming more absent, this is sort of filling a vacuum for people, this, this, this technology um, and this belief in, in all-powerful technology that will take us out of our, our actual humanity and, um, you know, maybe make gods out of all of us. <laughs> well, you know what it is, Jennifer? I mean, I was like, I've started to realize I am a pretty happy person. I'm not like, you know, an idiot <laughs> running around skipping and throwing daisies at people, but I am in news, <laughs> so I'm somewhat cynical. But um, I think these people, like there are a lot of deeply unhappy people out there and they would love to escape to another body. They would love to escape to another self. And then to see everyone around them escape to another self so that everybody's level of happiness goes down. So there, there actually are people who think like that, see that as a, quote, solution to their problem. And we're allowing ourselves to be influenced by these people. Let me back up with you one, one step, because you wrote something that I thought was really interesting. You've said that the, popula- the true population of transgender individuals is zero. So I want to talk to you about this because I, I was always told by people I trusted and, and, and I was read, that there there is a very, very, very small subset of the population that has genuine gender dysphoria, basically from birth. You know, they know by the time they're three years old, I don't feel like I'm in the right body. I really feel like I'm a member of the opposite sex. And those people are not people who at age 16 suddenly say, yeah, I'm trans, when really they're just socially awkward. They're people who their earliest memories are of feeling I'm in the wrong body. And we've accepted those people as genuinely gender dysphoric. They say they're transgender and then they go and they have all this, the operation. So 
What explain that claim that there there really are no that the transgender population is zero? Well, you know, I don't doubt that some people, you know, from a young age have complicated or even negative feelings about their sex body. Um, there's a condition called identity body identity integrity disorder where people feel like one of their limbs does not belong to them. It's usually a lower extremity, um, like a leg or a foot. Um, and they feel so insistent on this that they've actually taken it upon themselves to try and cut it off. Um, so far, we haven't made a habit of cutting off limbs of these people, right? Um, and we haven't um, celebrated this as an identity. We don't have any modeling agencies for them. We don't have any makeup lines for them. We don't put them on the cover of magazines or put them in TV shows um, as positive lifestyle representation um, because it's considered a disorder, a disordered thinking. Now, in, in terms of children that have this, uh, you know, this sense that, you know, uh, they don't like their bodies, um, this is a very, very minuscule part of the population. Um, and it's, it's being used as is intersex conditions um, and other issues uh, to further along this narrative that sex is a spectrum, you know. And, um, you know, it's a horrible thing that children are being used in this way, but um, they have to, they have to have the transgender child in order to substantiate the uh, transsexual male and his fixation on owning womanhood. Because you can't sell that to the public as a positive. Um, so you have to have the transgender child and the transgender child is a legal construct as is the transgender adult. It's a legal construct. Um, in 2000, I don't even remember the year, but you know, in the span of a few years in mid two thousands, you had, uh, George Soros open society foundation made a, a legal guide for uh, creating, basically manifesting the transgender child. And Arcus Foundation also funded um, another um, guide for sort of bringing legal structure to this, uh, to children. Um, and who was, who was the other one? Uh, Denton's Law Firm um, helped create, and which is like one of the largest law firms in the world, uh, international law firms in the world. Um, did pro bono work to create legal structure for transgender children. Um, if, if the medical industrial complex, you know, 50 years ago had heard about children, you know, wanting to uh, disown their sex, I'm sure that they would have been manipulating them a whole lot sooner. Uh, this, is, this is a legal construct. It's not real. So it, transgenderism is just not real. It doesn't mean anything. It's an umbrella term that brings in all of these different issues and it's incoherent, which is why they don't want anybody to talk about it because if you start talking about it, it just breaks apart. And so their response to, well, let's discuss this is no debate, no debate. 
our reality is not up for debate, you know, but in fact, your reality is not reality at all. Reality is the natural world. That's, that's about as real as you can get, you know, what goes up must come down. What you said about, uh, this is part of like, this is rooted in men's desire to own womanhood, women. Well, transvestic fetishism. I mean, it started out as uh, men that wanted to dress as women for a sexual compulsion. Um, It wasn't very popular and it wasn't accepted in society, certainly. They had to do this in private. And so they did. And they made groups. And eventually one of these groups um, started uh, in the UK and this man named Martin Rothblatt joined. He's an American entrepreneur, lawyer, who's owned a, um, a pharmaceutical corporation. He's written about the on-ramp of transgenderism to transhumanism. He's written about the future of technological uh, usurpation of um, uh, human reproduction, you know, taking it to the tech sector. He's made a robot of his wife and thinks he's instilling her consciousness in in the robot. Um, And he got together with these other transvestic and transvestite, uh, transvestic and transsexual lawyers in the UK um, and created legal structure to make the transgender person, the transsexual person, to give it legal weight. Um, Now, these are just people that want to disown their sex you know, for whatever reasons they want. I mean, this group wanted to disown it for, because they have this compulsion and this compulsion, fetishes usually escalate. They don't usually stay in one spot. You know, I have this fetish and this is the fetish and that's how it it usually escalates. And this industry is also, this transsexual industry um, has also been driven by the porn industry because porn objectifies women sexually. And the industry of porn brought, you know, women's sexual objectification into the home. And this happened at a time when the first man had the first transsexual surgery in the United States. I don't know if he had the surgery here, but he was American and he did. I think he had it somewhere else. He came back, um, Christine Jorgensen, and he was celebrated, you know, in the culture for this. And so these uh, two incidents happened within a year of each other. The, uh, you know, this surgery, the first surgery in America to be like popularized. And then this, the industry of the porn industry, you know, magazines being delivered right to your home. So you don't have to go to some seedy little, you know, back room in a store, uh, you know, to watch porn, to see porn, right? You could just invite it into your home. Now this becomes uh, a billion, billion dollar industry. And the porn needs to escalate in order for men to continue to be aroused by it. So the old porn, you know, 1970s porn gets pushed out into the culture. And, you know, like Megan the Stallion, you know, you can watch her ride around and do sexual antics and stuff on it on a music stage. So that's like, you know, that's the old porn, it's pushed pushed out into the culture. And now you know, the actual porn is just becomes more and more degrading and debasing and humiliating for women. And young boys can now watch this on the flip of a phone, just type in porn. And what comes up is horribly, you know, degrading images of women being penetrated in multiple uh, orifices and being called vile, vile names. Um, yeah, 
And so this, this uh, trajectory of both of these things in the culture uh, is just escalating and escalating. And so men seeking to own womanhood, this fetish is also escalating. And with the advancement of medical technologies to make more and more realistic uh, synthetic simulacrums of women, um, they haven't been able to perfect, <laughs> you know, no. the the uh, simulation of male characteristics. Um, well, my God, just take a but, look at that Pritzker guy. I was, <laughs> good Lord. <laughs> They're nowhere near perfecting it. <laughs> Keep working on it, Jennifer. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, this, this is really a technological medical advancement of, um, of a fetish into an industry of body dissociation. And when you take it to its zenith, to transhumanism, it's actually owning women's reproductive capacities through technology, through medical technology. Oh my God, so crazy. Until women are erased. And this, is, and this is why the boundary between males and, you know, women are being assimilated into males, you know, in the culture now, like by the erase, erasing of their, of their uh, safe spaces. You know, they don't want any, um, you know, demarcation line between males and females. They, you know, the whole sports issue is just, I mean, it's complete and total insanity on its face. But um, it, 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 um, it, it's, it's almost like planting a flag after you've colonized the territory. Like they're colonizing your biology, you know, yeah, you're right, you're right. But, you know, they're colonizing your biology. This is what's happening here. You know, your rights are just like planting the flag. You know, that's like that comes so, later. So who's I mean, we we talked about the Pritzkers. We talked about John Stryker. Who are the other big pushers of this, like the big financiers? Uh, well, Tim Black Gill Rock is another mentioned. one. Tim Gill is another one. He has, he's very, very quiet, Tim Gill, um, on this front. Um, he's, um, he has the second most largest, probably most powerful, uh, LGBT organization in, um, in the world. Um, and, uh, it's called the Gill Foundation. And he, uh, he works hand in hand with John Stryker to do the same thing. He's a philanthropist. He's a billionaire. He's poured billions of, you know, his own money into this issue. Um, first, it was gay marriage. They turned the, the whole state of, uh, and I say they because Stryker's sister, John Stryker's sister, Pat Stryker, worked with um, Tim Gill in Colorado to turn the state from red to blue. Now, I actually did um, another interview, and I, I made an error in that. and <laughs> I said that they turned into a red state, but it's a blue state now. It's Democratic. Yeah, it's a blue now. And yep. they did this with piles and piles of money and threat. Um, and so they are also, and he comes out of Quark Press, so he comes out of technology. You know, so this is like, this is, you know, Silicon Valley in bed with the medical industrial complex. And it's fused and fueled by, you know, the finance, you know, big finance, BlackRock and uh, Ernst & Young and other, you know, uh, well, how, Asset how, management corporations. How do we have total surrender by 
the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Pediatricians. How did this, how did all these people get them to just completely bend the knee? Well, <clears throat> threat, basically, financial threat. If you do not go along with this ideology, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be socially ostracized. Uh, you might you might lose your job. And people with families, you know, don't want to rock the boat. Um, and further, um, it's just been an, a constant indoctrination. We are so tied to our technology already. I mean, the idea of transhumanism is not really that far from what we're living now. We've been so dissociated from our natural environment and spend so much time on technologies. Um, with technologies, we probably touch machines more than we touch the people in our lives. Um, and we're always on here and where this, this information has been coming over the same tech that's driving it, you know, <clears throat> that's creating it. You know, that is creating the surgeries. There's the same tech where this information is being indoctrinated into the public. It's more like an indoctrination, um, you know, um, process. It's more like indoctrination than it is about convincing people because it's happening so much and it's tied to the LGB, civil rights movement, which has already been. Um, accepted, mostly accepted in Western cultures, advanced Western cultures. You know, gay people can, you know, have jobs and live in the, the society and be happy and comfortable. And, you know, um, so this is tied to this human rights movement. And so nobody's really thinking about it because this is the information that they get. And the other sources of information are virtually cut off, censored. So they're not getting that information. They only get the drumbeat. Trans rights are human rights. Trans rights are human rights. Trans rights are human rights, right? And especially young people, you know, they're, they're impressionable. They're young. They're full of, you know, youthful zeal and rebellion. And they're looking for themselves. They're looking to find themselves. And, um, you know, you have mostly two-parent households where both parents are out of the house. You know, for for large periods of time, kids are stuck in nursery schools or, you know, pre-K schools um, and they're not getting the attention. And they're also on their tech. You know, I've seen babies in the store. You know, the mother gives them a phone or a, or a, a tablet, you know, to keep them mm -hmm. quiet. And young kids, they're on their games or they're on their technologies now. And the parents, um, even when they get together, the kids, you know, the, your friend comes over to your house. They're like they're all on their tech. Right. And your parents doesn't really know, like, what are the conversations you're having on there? It's private. Whereas you used to have your kids used to have conversations with each other out in the open. And you could, you know, you could overhear them, even if you weren't like really listening to them. So you had a sense of like, well, how are their minds developing? What were they watching? Yeah. What was influencing them? But now it's like it's a total, you know, it's a total freak fest because there's all these influencers on their social media, especially like on TikTok. And TikTok is platformed with um, is um, melded with Planned Parenthood, which is like the largest uh, dispenser of puberty blockers in the United States. Can I ask you a question? So they're all it's partnered been, up. I've, I've been wrestling with this. Um, understanding that a lot of the youth who get attracted to this 
they're not really having any genuine gender dysphoria. They're just looking for some way to rebel or express themselves or feel like they're special or they belong. But still, given that it's become a social contagion, certainly for girls and I think for boys too at this point. Yes. Would would you what would you say to parents out there if a child comes home, you know, 14, 15 years old saying, oh, this is my new best friend, you know, Jenna, but it's really John. And you know, it was John six months ago. Like without being disparaging to any one individual, I have to say I'd have qualms. And I like, I just don't know how healthy it would be at this point, given this social contagion factor to have your kids spending a bunch of time. And I I know it, it sounds cruel, like, don't hang out with a transgender person. But I see this person is very confused. I really wouldn't want my kid hanging around with a cutter either. You know, like that's that person's having some serious mental struggles. And I think you mm-hmm. you can probably my mother always used to say life is too short to surround yourself with unhealthy people. It does matter. So what I, I don't mean to sound matters. heartless, but what's your take on it? Um, well, it's hard to get away with it you know, away from at this point, because, you know, so many children are adopting these identities. So what you have to do, what's absolutely imperative is that you talk to your children about what's happening. They need to know about corporate influence. They need to know about what's happening here. Exactly. Um, you know, that some people have a disorder of their thinking and it's, you know, it's unkind to be unkind to them, but it's not real. None of this gender blah 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 is real and they have to understand this they have to know this i have a relative who has a daughter when she was four you know she has four brothers and she came to um my relative and she said you know uh i want to i want to be a boy i'm a boy and she's you know this person said no you're not and you're never going to be you can do whatever you want that a boy can do you can cut your hair, you can wear whatever you want, you can say whatever you want, you can be engaged in whatever activities you want. Don't care, up to you, but you're not a boy and you're never going to be a boy. And that was it. That was the end of it. Perfect. That's um, what we used to call parenting. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not so hard. You also, we can still I do mean, it. This happens. You have to get them off tech. You have to get them away from tech. Get them into the natural world. Get them engaged in other things. Learn a language. Take music classes. You know, be surrounded with other healthy children that are embodied and enjoying their bodies. You know, gymnastics, you know, sports, so that they can feel their bodies. At this point, you know, they're so involved in tech that this technology is so real for them. You know, that the identities that they're forming there are so real, you know, that you have to divorce them from this technology. And how about the capture? You know, is there any, as somebody who's immersed herself professionally in studying the amount of dollars put towards this agenda, how it's been pushed on us through the medical industrial complex, through the tech complex, is there any way out of this? Like, do we emerge? Like, for example, I feel like we're starting to emerge from the Black Lives Matter race essentialism madness. It's not done, but we're in a better place than we were in 2020. That's for sure. But now I'm starting to feel like, my God, is there no way out of this? Because you've got all these billionaires, George Soros and the Pritzkers and, you know, John Stryker and et cetera. 
how do we extract their tentacles from our lives? And is there any restoring normalcy? Well, I mean, I don't really know the answer to that. I don't know where this is going, but resisting my own enslavement is, um, and the enslavement of the children in my life uh, is of paramount importance to me. And it's exhilarating to call out the truth in a sea of lies. It's absolutely exhilarating. So it is exhilarating. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that we need to do that and need to look at it like that. And activism is a love story and everybody really needs to become an activist at this point. You don't have a choice. You have to become an activist. You have to organize against this. Uh, You can't just leave it to the activists or leave it to somebody else. You know, you have to organize in your own communities. Um, And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of pushback now. What are we organizing for? Can you help me like to the to the moms and dads listening to this right now? who are like, OK, I'm in. What exactly do they need to do? Well, they need to go to their school boards and say, I want this this, you know, we I want this out of my my kids schools. Right. I don't want this here. You have to organize with other parents to go in there and make sure it's not happening. You know, you have to file lawsuits against these people that are trying to indoctrinate your children wherever it's happening. Um, Doctors are now being sued by by people who have had these um, surgeries, young people who are now, you know, in regret mode after they've woken up and they're, you know, and films are being made about these people, you know, and about the money. I think Joey Bright was the first person who mentioned you and mentioned the medical industrial complex aspect of this to me. And, she, of course, made a great film that we profiled on the show. Uh, my team's going to remind me of the names escaping me, but I want to give her credit. In any event, yes. So keep going. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you have to use your skills, whatever they are. You know, you, whatever they are. You can be funny. I mean, there's a guy, there's several guys on YouTube that ha- are funny and they make fun. they make fun of this issue. And there are other people that make songs about it. There's a, there's a guy on YouTube... Um, and uh, Twitter that makes uh, rap music about this. That is really, really good. Um, you know, if you're funny, be funny. If you're, if you make music, you know, make music. If you're, you know, if you're good at organizing, organize people. Um, you have to work to your strengths, but you have to become active and mobile to, you know, to resist this. Um, That's good advice. And whatever resistance happens. The, um, the name of Joey's film, and she came on and profiled and she changed the name. But anyway, right now it's Affirmation Generation. Generation. I watched it. I couldn't it remember it either. Bucks. It, it's, very, <laughs> it's very reasonable and it's well worth your time. And it's very exposing of a lot of, you know, what we're talking about and beyond. Uh, I'm actually in that generation. film with Joey. Yeah, that was the first introduction yeah. I had to you. And then on yeah. Twitter as well. I mean, you're just great. a wealth of information. And like so many fearless women who are doing what you're doing, um, like invaluable to those of us who can't devote as much time. Thank you, Jennifer, all, for all the work you do. Thanks for being so accommodating of us and our scheduling. And I, I really, my pleasure, Megan, my pleasure. And you're so brave to be just like, you know, putting this out there. I really, really appreciate it. Oh no, it, it's, it's all you, my friend and people, if you want to find more about Jennifer now, it, it's the 11th hour blog.com. Is it 11th, yes. like one, one TH or is it 11th yes. spelled out? It's numerical. One, one. Okay. Okay. So the 11th, one, one, th, our blog.com. 
Um, you're not going to find anybody better than this on, on this topic. It's so nice <laughs> to meet you. you in person. To be continued. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right. And all the best to our audience. Please do stay safe this weekend. Take precautions. You just never know. And um, now's a good time to stay vigilant. And, you know, as we used to say, if you see something, say something. We'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.